Have you ever had a situation where you feared for your life? Uh, an accident, an illness, maybe there's even someone here who has nearly drowned at some point. And, and recently we've been hearing about people all over the world who are experiencing life-threatening weather conditions. Uh, but even if we've not faced life-threatening physical danger, all of us will have experienced fear. All of us will have experienced a situation in life that made us feel like we were drowning. Uh, and that's because mentally and emotionally stressful situations can bring on those same feelings of fear and panic. Well, this morning, uh, this morning passage speaks into those uh, situations. Jesus calms the storm. This story reveals a God who has the power and authority uh, to deal with things that we have absolutely no control over. Usually the things we fear the most are the things that we can control the least. And so this morning we're going to refocus on Jesus, who has the power to deal with things that we couldn't possibly deal with. And today's passage uh, is the first in a trilogy within Matthew's Gospel that demonstrates Jesus' power over nature, the forces of evil, and sin. So firstly, Jesus calms a storm. Uh, he has power over nature. Then Jesus delivers two demon-possessed men. He has power over the demonic. Uh, and finally, he tells a paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven right before he, he tells him, get up, take your mat, and go home. So Jesus demonstrates his power over sin. This little section in Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus's power and authority over nature, over the forces of evil, and over sin. And today we're focusing on Jesus's power over nature. And parallel to that, we see the disciples going through this process of gradually discovering Jesus's identity as the man who is God. And actually, we can observe this process throughout the book of Matthew. The disciples are piecing things together. They have a growing understanding of who Jesus is. And that understanding continues to grow even after the resurrection, especially after the resurrection. And as Christians, we should experience something like this as well. Over the course of our lives, we become increasingly aware of who Jesus is. Of course, that process will not be straightforward. Often, it's a case of two steps forward and one back. Uh, when it comes to our faith, all of us have ups and downs. But often, it's the struggles and the setbacks, the storms of life, that ultimately increase our faith and bring us to a greater awareness of who Jesus is. And out of that awareness comes a desire to follow him wholeheartedly. So the disciples are at sea with Jesus, although technically they're not at sea because what Matthew calls the Lake of Galilee, or rather the Sea of Galilee, uh, is actually a lake. It's a, a, a rather large lake. It's about 21 kilometers in length by about 12 kilometers across, but it is a lake nevertheless. Uh, Luke, with his broader horizons, calls it by another name, the Lake of Gennesaret. But the fact that it's so often referred to as a sea points to a very first century Jewish perspective. And that is that the Hebrews were landlubbers. Uh, they had a deep-seated fear of the ocean. 
Now, if you're afraid of heights, you're probably not going to see a lot of difference between a bungee jump and a freefall parachute jump. Both would be equally terrifying. And for the Hebrews, this large body of water, the Sea of Galilee, was just as foreboding as the Mediterranean Sea. The sea represented the forces of chaos in John's vision of the new creation in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. In other words, there was no longer any confusion, turbulence, and chaos. So that's a Hebrew perspective on the sea itself. And the Sea of Galilee was and is prone to freak storms that could easily prove fatal to the crew of a small fishing boat, such as the disciples might have been using. But the word that's used for storm is actually seismos. That normally means earthquake. So maybe this was a storm that was beyond anything that the disciples had encountered before. Even for the fishermen amongst them, this was a terrifying, life-threatening situation. Events were completely beyond their control, and the disciples were understandably fearful and panic-stricken. But you know, it's not wrong to be fearful. Fear is a natural emotion. Jesus experienced fear. You'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as his crucifixion approached, he was so afraid that he sweat drops of blood. We shouldn't beat ourselves up about feeling fearful about situations of physical danger and emotional turmoil. Fear is a natural uh, response. And what is equally natural is crying out to God in those situations. Whenever we come to the end of our own resources, when we have nothing left, when there is no one and nothing that can help us, all that remains is to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Fear can be a great catalyst for prayer. In a 1954 broadcast from the White House, President Dwight Eisenhower quoted a phrase that was coined in the Second World War. He said, there are no atheists in foxholes, by which he meant if the situation is dire enough, then people will turn to God in prayer. I saw an example of this just the other day. Uh, An old school friend of mine Uh, posted a blasphemous rant by an American comedian on Facebook. Uh, He was ridiculing those who believe in the existence of God. He was ridiculing God. Um, I've rarely seen a more scathing and vitriolic denial of God. And someone responded, you know, in the comments below, they wrote, love it, Paul. And I thought I recognized the name of the person who wrote love it, Paul, but I couldn't quite um, place them. So I clicked on their profile. And their very last post, right at the top, was a message lamenting a huge mistake, his words, that he'd made in his life. And he finished this message with these words. He said, I betrayed her trust and can only hope and pray that one day she will forgive me. I can only hope and pray. Isn't it ironic that a man who applauds a blasphemous, God-denying tirade also mentions prayer when the chips are down, when he's fearful of losing his wife. You could say, ah, hope and pray, that's just a term of phrase. But I think it's indicative of a wider attitude within our culture. Many are are quite forceful in their denial of God, but when there's nowhere else to turn, they often, not always, but often, find themselves praying. So prayer 
crying out to God is an instinctive human reaction to fear. And the disciples were in that little fishing boat, uh, getting buffeted around by the storm, afraid that the boat would literally disintegrate, fearful that they were going to drown. They didn't quite know this at the time, but uh, they didn't need to pray because they had Jesus right there in the boat with them. Where is Jesus? He's asleep at the back of the boat. Jesus was obviously really tired. This speaks to us of his humanity. Why was he tired? Well, to understand that, we we need to look back in Matthew's gospel and see what was happening immediately before. And we find Jesus at Peter's house, healing the sick and casting out demons. Verse 16 tells us this. It says, when evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. Notice it was when evening came that uh, people were brought to Jesus. Jesus might have been up all night healing the sick. By the time he got into the boat the next day, he was spent. He was exhausted. Hence, he was able to sleep through the first part of the storm. Anyone who's ever been involved in ministry uh, will know how exhausting it can be. I have no trouble believing that Jesus could sleep through a storm. So the disciples, they rush over and wake him up. They say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They're halfway there, aren't they? They're halfway there. They know that Jesus can save them, but they obviously still think that drowning is a possibility. They had the creator of the universe with them in person, and yet they still thought that they might drown. We can really see the process of the uh, development of their faith, can't we? They believe, but they don't quite believe in uh, Mark's gospel, Mark 9, uh, there's a man who wants Jesus to heal his son. He says this to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that's a prayer for all of us, isn't it? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. We all have that tension. We believe the gospel is true, but living it out to the full in every area of our lives, that's a challenge, isn't it? It's difficult. And it can be especially difficult when we're gripped by fear. But knowing who Jesus is, really knowing in our heart who Jesus is, uh, that makes the world of difference. It's a total game changer. The disciples cried out, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Matthew, Mark and Luke all report this event. But only Matthew includes this uh, slight rebuke from, from Jesus. Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? Don't you know who I am? And he says the same to us when we're facing life storms. Why are you afraid? Don't you know who I am? As soon as Jesus said that, he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the disciples asked this vitally important question. What kind of a man?